Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. For five days in the spring of 1992, Los Angeles burned. The case that shocked the world and now it has exploded into a city out of control. Whole blocks in L.A.'s Koreatown are still smoldering after a long night of violence. As you can hear in these news clips, during that week, rioting tore the city apart. It was a response to the acquittal of four officers charged with assault against Rodney King, a black L.A. resident. King's beating and the acquittal of the officers set off an eruption of violence that had been building in L.A. for years. Of course, the roots of this unrest were complex, with many contributing factors, but in their investigations into the conditions that led to the riots, scholars have come to a surprising conclusion. One of the major drivers of the displacement and police militarization that led to the riots was the 1984 Olympic Games. How could hosting the Olympics be partially responsible for this kind of unrest? Here's Jules Boykoff, a professor of politics who we heard from in part one of this two-part story on Olympic host cities. The Los Angeles Police Department secured a number of special weapons, you know, battering rams. They even had tons of helicopters, of course, for those Olympics that they turned around and used against these communities as part of the racialized drug war. In 1974, the LAPD's operating budget was just under 200 million. 10 years later, that number was 525 million. Over the course of those years, the police bought helicopters, purchased military-grade battering rams that look almost indistinguishable from tanks, and hired thousands of new officers. The goal, of course, was to protect the Olympics, but that didn't appear to be the only goal. As one LAPD captain put it, the police aimed to quote-unquote sanitize the area around the major Olympic venues. That meant pushing out thousands of LA's most disadvantaged citizens, many of whom were victims of the drug crisis, many of whom were experiencing homelessness, and many of whom were Black. Three years after the Olympics, the LAPD would use its new muscle to conduct Operation Hammer, during which they arrested more than 24,000 Black youths. The battering rams became infamous in LA's poorer neighborhoods, where some cops appeared to relish bashing down the walls of suspected crack houses. Some of the officers tagged ruined homes with pro-police graffiti and kept tallies of how many homes they had destroyed on the rams themselves. Parts of LA began to look like war zones. In our last episode, we talked about how the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984 were a watershed moment a sterling example of how the Olympics could turn a profit. But they also meant a huge influx of money for the LAPD. And that influx made a lasting impact, one that lingered long after the Olympic flame had left Memorial Coliseum. You know, I think that's the thing to remember with that one is that these weapons that are secured during the Olympic moment, they don't put them back in boxes and send them back when they're done with the Olympics. 
they keep them and they become part of normal everyday policing in the wake of the games. And so activists I've spoken with in Los Angeles have drawn a very straight line between the 1984 Olympics and the beating of Rodney King in 1992. The Olympics can be about freedom, about expression, about unleashing human potential and testing its limits. But as you know, if you've been listening to this show, it's always more complicated than that. Throughout Olympic history, governments have used the games to paper over social problems, suppress dissent, and force their agenda on their citizens. It was a slow burn in Los Angeles where the militarization that the Olympics helped set into motion created a conflict that simmered for years. But decades earlier, another conflict had unfolded, or rather, erupted. A public reaction to preparations for the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City. What followed was a period of unrest that reached its peak on one of the bloodiest nights in modern Mexican history. The Tataloco Massacre. Hundreds of protesters were arrested, beaten, tortured. But much of what had happened that night has remained in the shadows, shrouded by secrecy, and spoken about only in whispers. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. This is part two of our investigation into what really goes on when a city hosts the Olympics. Last week, we talked about Montreal, where careless spending and empty promises left the Olympic hosts saddled with a debt that lasted decades. In this episode, we're talking about an even sadder legacy, the violence and turmoil that can come with hosting the games and the role of the Olympics in one of the most horrific events in the history of modern Mexico. We are merely one of the peoples upon the face of the earth. We trust and we wish to be trusted. We ask for good faith from others, from all the peoples of the earth. What do you think you just heard? An excerpt from a sermon? Or maybe the beginning of a particularly high-minded yoga class. Those were actually the opening lines of a promotional film for the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. They were spoken by Jose Reveltas, a well-known author and left-wing activist. Previous administrations had sent Reveltas to prison for his political activities, but now he was called upon to help showcase a revitalized Mexico. The country saw enormous economic growth in the decades before the Olympics, transforming its economy and dramatically improving the quality of life for most Mexicans. It was known as the Mexican miracle. In part, they were trying to overcome a sort of cliched image of Mexico as this sleepy, primitive, underdeveloped kind of country. And so their hope was by hosting an elaborate and successful Olympics, they could counteract that vision that much of the world had of them. That's Kevin Witherspoon, a professor of history at Lander University. Kevin wrote the book, Before the Eyes of the World. The title is a translation of one of the slogans of the Mexico City Olympics, Ante los Ojos del Mundo. As we saw last week, the Olympics can be an enticing opportunity to governments looking to showcase their progress 
and cast their culture in a new light. We also learned that those showcases can end up costing the host an insane amount of money. Take a look at the most recent Olympics in Tokyo, where originally they were supposed to cost $7.3 billion. In the end, they cost closer to $30 billion. Loads of public money being shoveled into the project. You look at uh, the previous Summer Olympics in Rio, supposed to cost $12 billion, cost more like $20 billion. You can look at the London Olympics that were supposed to cost $3.8 billion in 2012 and instead cost well over $18 billion, and that's a conservative estimate. You can just keep on talking down the road like that. But not every Olympics is a disaster. Here's Victor Matheson, a professor of economics at the College of the Holy Cross. Barcelona rose from about the 12th most popular tourist destination in Europe prior to the Olympics to about the fifth most popular destination in Europe a decade after the Olympics. It allowed it to be its big coming out party and say, hey, look at everything we have to offer. We saw a little bit of the same thing in Salt Lake City when they hosted the Winter Olympics in 2002. In the decade after the Olympics, the number of daily skier visits in uh, Salt Lake grew by about 20% faster than the number of daily skier uh, visits next door in Colorado. We saw some very big and successful games in both Tokyo and Rome in the 1960s, again, as ways to kind of say, hey, look, Italy and Japan have emerged from the ruins of World War II. And of course, their, their role in World War II as you know, full citizens of the world. That was exactly how Adolfo López Mateos, the president of Mexico from 1958 to 1964, felt about hosting the Olympics. López Mateos was a member of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, which had ruled Mexico uninterrupted since 1929 and overseen the Mexican miracle. The organizers of the Olympic bid and the Olympics themselves wanted to convey a message that Mexico was highly developed and modern, but also had a rich culture and history and many things in their country to be celebrated. This was going to be more than three weeks of sporting events. It was going to be a celebration of the different cultures that made Mexico unique. Lopez Mateos, the PRI, and Pedro Ramirez Vasquez, a Mexican architect who is president of Mexico City's Olympic Committee, designed not only new buildings, but an entirely new aesthetic for the 68 Olympics. The Games set a new standard in Olympic graphic design, with iconic patterns based on elements of Mexico's indigenous cultures. The Games organizers went to great lengths to show off this aesthetic, including the production of a very artistic promotional film, the one featuring Jose Reboltas. We are all composed of that cosmic essence which sustains us. Mexicans who speak in different tongues, men who speak the same language in different parts of the world. A hand extended in friendship is more than all the nations, and a free man is more than all of them. We will not vanish from the earth as long as we clasp one another's hands. These clips of Revoltus with a distinctive long beard and thick glasses marked him as an intellectual. They were accompanied by scenes of ancient ruins, modern cityscapes, and abstract images reminiscent of new wave cinematography. It was all part of the game's beautiful, elaborate, and eye-popping visual identity. On that front, Mexico City was ready to look good when the eyes of the world turned its way. But what about Mexican society? 
Mexico, for decades after the Mexican Revolution, which occurred in the early 20th century, had kind of carried on with a facade of the democratic process. They did have elections every six years, which more or less went off peacefully and with little controversy. But the quote-unquote democratic system was controlled essentially by one political party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI. So in the United States, we talk about the two-party system. Well, imagine if we only had the Republicans or if we only had the Democrats, but we still had elections every four years for the president. You might call that a democracy. On the other hand, where's the real democracy there? Mexico had experienced an economic boom in the decades before the Olympics, which some dubbed the Mexican miracle. But while quality of life had dramatically improved, that wasn't the same thing as having a true democracy. One big difference was freedom of the press. The PRI, the single party that exercised total control over Mexican politics, also had an ironclad grip on the Mexican media. The government controlled access to paper and ink and various supplies. They could easily move in and shut down any radio or television broadcast. So they controlled the message. As you might expect in a nation with no real press freedom and no official opposition, the military held a prominent role in Mexico's government and society. This extended to the Olympics. One of the driving figures behind Mexico City's bid was General José de Jesús Clark Flores, who in 1966 became the highest-ranking Latin American member of the International Olympic Committee. The general was, of course, very concerned with the safety of the Games. But he also seems to have seen them as an opportunity to show off Mexico's military, which is why he decided to create a new military unit, especially for the Olympics. He wanted to create this special battalion which would be tasked with overseeing security around the games, but it was also, it had a very ceremonial kind of quality as well. These soldiers typically wore white helmets and white gloves. They wore very decorative kind of uniforms. And much of their duties leading up to the Olympics involved being available for photo shoots. This new unit with its distinctive helmets and gloves was called the Olympia Battalion. And though its duties may have been ceremonial at first, the Mexican military's role in the Olympics was about to get very real. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Let's zoom out for a minute and turn our attention to some more recent examples of what militaries and police forces do to prepare for the Olympics. Some of you may remember the months before the 2016 Games, when the police rolled through Rio's poorest neighborhoods, the favelas, with riot gear and bulldozers. All in all, the Brazilian government forced 77,000 people out of their homes in order to sanitize the city for the Rio Games. Seoul, South Korea forced over 700,000 people from their homes before the 88 Olympics. In Atlanta before the 96 Games, 
6,000 people were evicted from public housing. An estimated 30,000 were displaced in total. Sadly, it's not hard to predict who will get forced out of their homes to make way for the Olympics. We certainly see from the research that when you have to build new stadiums, often, you know, where do you build these? You don't knock down a bunch of mansions in the ritziest suburbs in order to build this. What you do is you engage in a massive amount of slum clearance, right? You basically gentrify large areas, and of course, who gets displaced by that is the poor people who are already working there. And even for those who aren't forced out of their homes, the Olympics can bring sizable disruptions. Here's Jules again, talking about possibly the weirdest example of this phenomenon. So when I lived in London, I met some people who lived in a flat who had surface-to-air missiles ratcheted onto the roof of their apartment complex in order to protect the Olympic spectacle. They were none too happy about this for a variety of reasons. They'd wondered if they'd been become kind of a terrorist target in themselves, perhaps. And also, they weren't very happy about the fact that they became informed about these missiles being ratcheted to their roofs by some people came along and slipped pieces of paper underneath their door informing them, oh, by the way, you now have missiles on your roof. The missiles were temporary, but security cameras placed all around London for the 2012 Olympics stayed, making London one of the most surveilled places on Earth. As we heard about in Los Angeles, security measures put in place during the Olympics can permanently change a city. That brings us back to Mexico City, 1968. 1968 was an exciting time for students all over the globe. This was one of the most tumultuous years in world history or modern world history. And prior to what happened in Mexico, there had been massive student protests and marches in places like Paris, London, Prague, and of course in the United States. So a number of scholars have talked about a sort of global fever. And students in Mexico became a part of that as well. The situation began to heat up in July when the police intervened in a fistfight between students from rival schools. The brutality of the police's response set off a wave of demonstrations. They broke up this scuffle among the students, but they came in swinging their nightsticks and cracking people over the heads. And so what followed was a, a growing student protest movement that started in this relatively innocuous moment, but then it became marches against police violence. Others began to voice their protests about democracy or the lack of democracy in Mexico. Others chimed in about conditions on their campuses, in universities and schools. Beginning with a single instance of police brutality, the protests expanded to encompass all sorts of grievances, which were lurking just under the surface of Mexican society. The police continued to respond to the peaceful protests with violence. Maybe it was inevitable that, as the summer wore on and the games drew near, Olympic symbols started cropping up at protests. Over time, they began to latch on to Olympic symbols like the five Olympic rings, which they transformed into, you know, the treads of a tank. The Olympic torch, which, you know, was twisted in all manner of street art and cartoons that the students put together. The white dove, which was a symbol of peace associated with these Olympics. And the students began depicting the white dove, but with red blood splattered on it and so on. To be clear... The protests were never really about the Olympics. But as the government continued to brutalize demonstrators, its propaganda about hosting a peaceful celebration of the Olympic ideals started to seem like a farce. 
So they didn't oppose the Olympics as an athletic festival. They didn't really even oppose it as a way to bring the world together and bring attention to Mexico. They did oppose the thought that millions of Mexicans were living in poverty at the same moment that the nation was pouring millions of dollars into staging this athletic festival that ultimately was going to go away and there wasn't going to be much lasting impact from all of that expense. With the Olympics due to begin on October 12th, violent incidents and police killings of protesters became more and more frequent. On September 18th, less than a month before the Olympics were set to begin, the Mexican military occupied UNAM, the National Autonomous University of Mexico, which was a stone's throw away from the Olympic Stadium. The government justified the occupation with a claim that students had threatened to sabotage the Olympics themselves. According to Kevin's book, there's no record of such a threat. But that didn't stop the military from brutalizing the students of UNAM over the next several days, killing at least 15, injuring hundreds, and making over 2,000 arrests. According to Kevin, these military operations, conducted against civilians at a university so close to the Olympic Park, demonstrates a sense of urgency on the part of the Mexican government. In 1968, there were conversations between Avery Brundage and other Olympic officials. And as I've mentioned, Clark Flores, who was the vice president of the International Olympic Committee himself, he's well aware of the kind of challenges that the student protest was beginning to pose. Unsurprisingly, the media downplayed the unrest. But news of it reached Avery Brundage, president of the International Olympic Committee. Brundage was in close contact with the Mexican authorities as the Games approached. He warned them that, quote, Mexico can lose the intangible benefits which come from staging the Olympic Games if the publicity is not favorable. On October 2nd, 1968, visitors from around the world were already in Mexico City, taking in the cultural Olympics that preceded the athletic competitions. The propaganda machine was firing on all cylinders, projecting an image of harmony that had less and less to do with reality. The Plaza de las Tres Culturas, a square in the neighborhood of Mexico City known as Tata Loco, was designed to embody Mexico's cultural harmony. But it had become a gathering place for protesters who felt that that harmony was a lie. There were Aztec ruins, which kind of blend in with the grassy slopes and hills within this large square. There's a Spanish cathedral, 17th century, and then the rest of the area is very modern. And there's a large central square surrounded by mostly apartment buildings at that time. This was a common gathering place for many of these kinds of protests and other meetings. And in general, I think the historic significance of the site was symbolic of peaceful gatherings. But its history is not peaceful. According to legend, it was the site of one of the Aztec Empire's last stands a battle that temporarily stalled, but could not prevent the ultimate conquest of Mexico by the Europeans. There's little historical evidence to tell us what really happened in this battle. And until the PRI fell from power in 2000, there was little publicly available evidence of what happened there on October 2nd, 1968. But now, thanks to the fearless survivors who have told their stories, and a government inquiry that finally acknowledged the truth. We know that afternoon, a crowd of student protesters gathered in Tataloco. Many of the young protesters were joined by their families, including children, 
An estimated 10,000 people were there. So was the military. But that wasn't unusual. The students became very accustomed, actually, to seeing military personnel and police around the fringes of their marches and protests, which is part of why I think on October 2nd, they were not as sensitive as we might want to think, looking back on it, to the fact that there were military helicopters floating overhead and there were military personnel all around them. That had been going on throughout the summer. Some survivors would later recall seeing men in white gloves standing throughout the square. A little after six o'clock, several of these men began rounding up student leaders and took them into a nearby apartment building. Around 6.20 p.m., two military helicopters buzzed the crowd. Historians now believe that the helicopters were signaling to the ground troops because a few moments later, the troops opened fire. Enrique Espinoza was one of the protesters in Tataloco that evening. Fifty years later, he returned to the square to deliver his account of what happened. Espinoza was right in front of the apartment building, standing with his mother, when the troops began to fire. He says he felt bullets coming down and saw people fall. People started running. Certain details like the flares gave witnesses the impression that the military had planned the massacre. But to this day, nobody really knows why the troops opened fire. Most scholars agree that if any of those troops went into the square intending to spark a massacre, they were very few in number. That is, the rank-and-file police and military did not go to the square that night to slaughter young Mexican citizens. However the shooting started, what followed was truly horrific. Part of what began happening as the violence erupted is that military troops are rolling into the square, literally rolling in in jeeps and tanks and marching in by the thousands of soldiers. And what they see are people firing from the balconies of the apartments. These were actually members of the Olympia Battalion in plain clothes firing down on the students below. But soldiers in the square think they're being fired upon by students. And they respond with heavy fire against the buildings themselves. And so tanks begin blasting away at the buildings and machine gun fire erupts. Soldiers fired from helicopters, even from tanks. They hurtled an ancient Aztec wall and closed in on the panicking crowd, creating a crush that caused further death and injury. People were rounded up, stripped down, thrown against walls, beaten, tortured, and tossed into police vans, never to be seen again. Around 300 people lost their lives in the Tataloka massacre, with over a thousand injured. One of the many arrests was Jose Rivaltas, star of the Olympic ad we played earlier in this episode. As dawn broke, the violence finally subsided and the Olympia Battalion called off its hunt for their survivors. But many were gone forever. There were so many people being picked up, uh, so many people being killed, that they were literally hauling out corpses in fishnets under helicopters like they did in Vietnam, because they did not want mass funerals and so forth, either just prior to, and most certainly not during, the, the Olympic Games. That was Dr. Harry Edwards, a chief organizer of the Olympic Project for Human Rights, speaking to a documentary crew about the 68 Olympics. He didn't witness the massacre, but he was on the ground and he heard about what happened. 
You may remember from our previous episode that Tommy Smith and John Carlos were terrified of snipers as they stood with their fist raised in a black power salute. They knew that exactly two weeks ago, that night, military snipers had been firing into the crowd at Tataloco. The next day, Avery Brundage told reporters he hadn't heard about the massacre, saying, I was at the ballet last night. But after the Olympics, when he was shown a cut of the official Olympic film, Brundage railed against the inclusion of Smith and Carlos's salute. Then, according to Kevin's book, he said the quiet part loud. It had nothing to do with sport, he said. It was a shameful abuse of hospitality and has no more place in the film than the gunfire at Tataloco. Brundage knew what had happened. His concern, as always, was for the image of the Olympics. If you listen to our episode about Smith and Carlos, you may remember that before the 1976 Olympics, ABC produced a film called Triumph and Tragedy in an attempt to incorporate what had happened in Munich into the broader Olympic story. In a film produced by a major American broadcaster meant specifically to cover tragedy in recent Olympic history, there was no mention of the massacre in Mexico City just eight years earlier. Plenty of people knew about the Tataloco massacre, but it got no coverage in the Mexican press. There was no possibility of the Olympics acknowledging it. Brundage was disgusted by the idea. Even when people like Dr. Edwards returned home and told the story, their secondhand accounts didn't make the news. For over three decades, the pre succeeded in hiding the massacre from the eyes of the world. There were accounts written immediately in the aftermath about at least some of what had happened. There were eyewitness stories told of what had happened. But from a historical perspective, as the decades begin to pass by, you have only a handful of records that really talk about what actually happened there. And so it's a process of uncovering top secret documents, uncovering previously hidden government documents. It was not until the year 2000, when the PRI was voted out after 71 straight years in power, that people in Mexico were able to openly discuss and investigate what had happened on October 2nd, 1968. In the early 2000s, one bundle of 30 or so photographs surfaces, which showed at least some of what had happened. The government authorized an investigation some decades later, and many people feel like that investigation itself was flawed and kind of glossed over. And I think even to this day, there is some interest among Mexican leadership to obscure and hide what really happened. There are many who feel the investigation didn't go far enough. Hundreds died, and not one of the perpetrators was brought to justice. But what happened that night is no longer secret. In 2008, the government designated October 2nd as a national day of mourning. Tataloco is a singularly atrocious moment, not only in Olympic history, but in world history. But it wasn't the first time that the spectacle of the Olympics provided cover for human rights abuses. Never forget, Hitler hosted the 36 Games. And it wouldn't be the last. So in 2008, we were working on issues like the incredible challenges that migrant workers in Beijing had getting paid or even getting contracts for their work. And you know these were precisely the kinds of workers who were building the bird's nest and all of these fantastic facilities. 
we were starting to write about the turn against independent civil society. You know, some of the activists, lawyers, professors that we know and have worked with were already being disappeared, being tortured, being driven into exile. That's Sophie Richardson of Human Rights Watch talking about China before the 2008 Beijing Olympics. After those Olympics, she told us the situation only got worse. The two 2008 triggered changes that we've really seen become much more problematic are the expansion of the domestic security apparatus. I mean, just a proliferation in the different kinds of police and their remit. And also the state's decision to really rely on multiple different forms of policing rather than on on governance on some level, but also really the, the exponential growth in the use of surveillance technology. Meanwhile, in places where people are still allowed to gather freely and speak their minds, activists are calling the very future of the Olympics into question. Our main mission is to stop the Olympic Games, not just from happening here in L.A., but, you know, just to educate people on why that's a thing that needs to happen and also just try to spread the word far enough. We, we do have a big transnational base as well uh, and try to try to spread the, the word of like why, why it's bad and also like it shouldn't be in any city. We don't want to just stop it for L.A. and then have someone else's city be destroyed by this. That's Albert Corrado, a member of a group called No Olympics L.A. Their mission is to stop the 2028 Olympics from happening in L.A. They want to start a global conversation about what the Olympics do to the communities that host them. I'll be honest and tell you that I, for one, really want the games to go on. But even for those of us who adore the Olympics, it's hard not to look at examples like Los Angeles, Montreal, and Mexico City and think we can do better. It's been over a century since Pierre de Coubertin, the French aristocrat we mentioned in part one, revived the idea of an international festival of sport. In that time, the Olympics have grown into something unique and beautiful, a celebration in which the whole world gets to take part. But for that celebration to take place, someone has to want to host. In the round of bidding for the 2024 Olympics, which ultimately went to Paris, Again, we had the issue of city after city dropping out. Hamburg dropped out, Boston dropped out, Bucharest dropped out, Rome dropped out. And so they were left with only Los Angeles and Paris as the final two uh, city standing. In the past, there's been a separate bidding process for every Olympics. But for the Olympics to adapt to new realities, the IOC had to break with tradition. And they awarded the 2024 games to Paris, but in a totally surprise move, they also, at the same time, without even asking for new bidders, gave the 2028 Olympics to Los Angeles. Now, part of the reason is they might have been afraid that they would get no one to bid for 2028. And that would be, of course, devastating for their business model. But also to say, look, we can limit the costs to new bidding countries. If we say, look, we've got two very good bids here, rather than make cities engage in a whole new expensive round of bidding for the next cycle, let's just hand it to Los Angeles right now. It was an unprecedented move, but given how fraught the bidding process has become, it kind of made sense. Maybe unprecedented moves are necessary, for the Olympics to meet unprecedented challenges. 
The 2026 FIFA World Cup will feature games in 16 different cities across Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. It will be the second time the World Cup has been jointly hosted by neighboring nations. South Korea and Japan shared duties in 2002. And we've already seen this phenomenon at the Olympics. In 1984, early rounds of the LA Olympic soccer tournament took place as far away as Boston. If you watched the closing ceremonies of the recent Winter Olympics, you saw the next Winter Games had two official host cities, Milan and Cortina. Could this be a better way forward? Let's instead have an Olympics that is a Northeast United States uh, Olympics, where you have events stretching from Boston down to D.C. That corridor would have way more than enough hotel rooms for any potential fans that would want to come in. While no one city has all of the uh, venues that it needs between Boston and Philly and New York City and D.C., you probably have enough uh, venues to be able to cover the majority of the sort of things between that larger uh, piece. There's also the idea of rotating host cities. Think about it this way. Maybe every city on Earth that needs an Olympic-ready bobsled run has already got one. What if those cities took turns? If you put the Summer Olympics in Athens and Los Angeles and rotated back and forth, or Athens, Los Angeles, and and Tokyo, rotated them every 12 years, at least that means when you build a velodrome, you're not building it for one time. You're building it for at least being able to use it every decade or so when that event is back in your city. On a certain level, this is already happening. Unless no Olympics stops them, the 2028 Olympics will be the third Olympiad held in Los Angeles. London has already hosted the Games three times. After 2024, Paris will have two. And of course, there's Beijing, which has hosted the Olympics twice already in my adult life. Jules has recommendations of his own. One of them is to put former and current Olympians in charge. The other involves shrinking the Games. I would put athletes actually first in this process if the Olympics must go on. The other thing is just make them a lot smaller. I mean, part of the issue here is that they have succumbed to what scholars call gigantism. The Olympics have become so enormous with so many events. And maybe some of these events just need to go. I mean, some of them are remnants of privileged past. So equestrian, dressage, I mean, that's like horse ballet. And it costs $70,000 a year just to maintain one of those horses. Who can do that? Well, I can tell you who can do that. Rich people can do that. Since Baron de Coubertin and his friends, who probably loved dressage, first got together and dreamt up the modern Olympics, the games have entertained and inspired millions. But the price that their hosts pay for the honor can be staggering, if not horrifying. In ways big and small, the Olympics has always been changing. Unlike the first modern Olympics, women are allowed to compete. So are professional athletes. And while there's no longer a gold medal awarded for poetry, mixed gender events, once unthinkable, have become a common feature of the games. So even if they've fallen far, far short of their ideals of the past, we have reason to believe that the Olympics can grow and change for the better. How that will look is anyone's guess, but one way or another, the Olympics will continue to inspire us, to surprise us, and to provide us with moments of bliss and agony in more or less equal measure. There will be stories of triumph, 
stories of suffering, stories that give us hope, and stories that give us reason to doubt the whole damn thing. And they'll all be stories worth telling. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. It was written by Stephen Wood. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen, Matt Azenstadt, Omar Tarbush, and Jack Williams. Next time on Torch, we'll be sharing a bonus episode. You can hear my full conversation with champion bobsledder Kaylee Humphreys on her childhood as an athlete, challenging abuse in a sport dominated by men, and winning gold. I was so in the moment that I just started doing what was normal. I'm like, okay, grab the sled, walk back down, here's what happened. And then I'm like, man, screw the sled, let it go, who cares what happens? Like, you just won the Olympics! Like, jump up and down, do something. But you're so just routine and in the moment. This is my job. This is what I have to do. That It doesn't register. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We'll see you next week.